Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We are thrilled this evening to present uh, Steve Erickson. Um, he's here tonight with his new novel, These Dreams of You, which uh, the Boston Globe said, in its gorgeous, vivid prose and its acutely sensitive soul, These Dreams of You shows us just what a novel can still do in our own crazy times. And the New York Times book review said, Erickson's seemingly fractured novel turns out to be something else. The novel as fractal, a series of endless, astounding tessellations. And I love that word, tessellations. Um, he's also the author of eight previous novels, including Zeroville, which was named one of the best novels of the year by Newsweek, the Washington Post Book World, and the Los Angeles Times book review, and noted as one of five favorite novels uh, in a winter 2008 National Book Critics Circle poll. He's also written two books about a American po politics and popular culture, Leap Year, which is this year, right? We have a Leap Year this year. And, uh, and American Nomad. Um, Erickson has written for a number of places, including Esquire, Rolling Stone, Conjunction, Salon, LA Weekly, New York Times Magazine. Uh, he's a film critic for the Los Angeles Magazine and editor of the literary journal Black Clock, which is published by the California Institute of the Arts, where he teaches in the MFA writing program. So please give a warm welcome to Steve Erickson. Thank you. Thank you, Cecil, for the introduction. I'm going to thank Skylight for having me here. And um, I'm going to read uh, from the new novel. Uh, I've, what I've done is I've taken the first 40 pages or so and, and kind of stitched together passages that will, I think, give you some idea of, of uh, how the novel opens. But years later, on a night in early November, when the wind comes in like a swarm, Alexander Nordock sits, sits in the rocking chair that he borrowed but never gave back where his wife used to breastfeed their son. It's 8 o'clock where he is in one of the canyons on the edge of Los Angeles. It's 10 o'clock in Chicago and thousands of people sweep across the TV screen and the same park where 40 years ago police and protesters rioted at the scene of a great national political convention and Nordock's country questioned all its possibilities. Alexander's four-year-old da daughter Sheba, adopted 19 months before from an orphanage in Ethiopia, sits on his lap. Sheba is the color of the man on the television, in whose form the country now has imagined its most unfathomable possibility. Alexander, who goes by Zan, is the color of everyone else in the family, including his wife Viv and his son Parker, whose 12th, whose 12th birthday happens to also be on this day. 
With the announcement of the man's election, Bedlam consumes the living room. He won, Parker explodes, leaping from the couch over a low white formica table that's in the shape of a cloud. He won, he won, he won, he keeps shouting, and Viv cheers too. Zan, Parker stops, baffled by his father's stupefaction. He won, aren't you happy? On the television is the image of an anonymous young black woman who in the grass of the park has fallen to her knees and holds her face in her hands. Do I have the right, Zan wonders, as a middle-aged white man to hold my face in my hands and then thinks no and holds his face in his hands anyway, silently mortified that he might do something so trite as sob. It's a country that does things in lurches, born in radicalism, then reluctant for years, decades, the better part of centuries, to do anything crazy until it does the craziest thing of all. But it's also a country inherent in its genes, capable of imagining what cannot be imagined, and then, once it's imagined, doing it. Six years before, another president, a white privileged Texan, swaggered across the deck of an aircraft carrier in a pilot's jacket, a banner unfurled behind him, proclaiming the end of a war that, in fact, was only beginning. It was an image that the country embraced almost as much as it believed it. Now, a black Hawaiian with a Swahili name is science fiction, Zan thinks or at least the sort of history that puts novelists out of business. At the radio station the next day from where Zan broadcasts four times a week a three-hour music show, he announces following the first set, the Sam Cooke record, the greatest ever made, was for what happened last night. 45 years after the song was recorded, but then all the song says is that a change will come, not how fast, right? By the, by the time the song was released as a B-side, the singer was murdered in an L.A. motel under tawdry circumstances. But is it just me, Zan asks, or when he goes from that bridge into the final verse, does, does he redeem not only anything he ever did, including whatever it was that got him shot, but everything I ever did too? The national anthem of dreams deferred, sung from the grave by a ghost who doesn't know he's dead. Everything else, Zan goes on, was for the kids. The hip-hop manifesto about brushing the dirt off your shoulder. That's for my 12-year-old son who's gone gangsta lately. Though at this point I'm sure he thinks the song is impossibly old school, being as it's more than half an hour old. And the really old school one about the lovers at the Berlin Wall who get to be heroes just for one day. That's for my four-year-old Ethiopian daughter who can't get enough of British extraterrestrials in dresses. The four-year-old Ethiopian glam rocker is the only one in the family not thrilled by the election result. Sheba has been the household sole supporter of the opposing candidate, a man the age of grandfathers and the color of snow, neither of which the small girl has known. Zan has three theories about Sheba's enthusiasm for this candidate. The first and most comfortable is that, in fact, he does remind her of Viv's father, who died two years before the little girl was born, and whom she sees in all the family photos. The second theory, more vexing if not too unsettling, is that she's just messing with everyone's heads. 
The third and most troubling theory is that in her 40-year-old soul, she's already come to believe the color of snow is preferable to the color of, well, pick your racist poison, chocolate, coffee, mud. With what brown does she associate? Since she came to live with the Nordox, she's noted more than once that her skin is one color and Zans, Vivs, and Parkers another. How come, the girl asks resentfully, returning from preschool where there are no other black children, you get to have light skin while mine is darker? Dismayed, Zan isn't sure he's heard right. Was that really the way she put it? Yours is lighter, she points out again, pulling at his arm and thrusting her thumb in her mouth. It is lighter, he says. Yours is darker and it's beautiful. Some people have light skin and some have dark. Some people have light hair and some have dark. The man who sings the hero song has red hair, she says. Yes. Mama has blue hair, she says. There you go, turquoise, actually. What's turquoise, she asks. A kind of blue, blue-green. Is it really blue or did she make it blue? She made it blue, says Zan. Why? She likes it, he says. It matches her eyes. Some people have light or dark eyes. Some people are tall and some aren't. Is this the way to answer the question? Is it better than because you're black and we're white if she doesn't yet have a concept of black and white? Or is it an answer that only a naive white person gives? On the other hand, no white sentimentality invents and no hard-nosed street wisdom disputes the preternatural awareness of the 40-year-old adopted child who shares with other abandoned children a perspective verging on the otherworldly. Oh yeah, says another father as she was preschool when Zan identifies her as his, the little girl who talks like she's 20. The night that Zan takes Parker to the emergency room with a broken hand and loses his car keys, he's still railing at the experience an hour later behind the wheel when, from her infant seat and back, Sheba advises, Poppy, let it go, before plopping her thumb back in her mouth. She dazzles everyone she meets. Eyes big enough to set her whole swirling solar systems. Her charismatic entrance into every room brings it to a halt. She's an irrepressible goofball, walking around with a small, small sticker stuck to the end of her nose, spitting water across the dinner table in a stream, like the stone water-breathing lion she saw in a fountain. Eventually, the mimicry becomes not, becomes not only more precocious, but blacker. Inevitable less because she herself is black than because, than because her white brother, like all kids in the 21st century, or maybe all kids since the first white boy or girl heard Louis Armstrong blow his horn, is blacker. Hey there, girlfriend, or what up, sweet cheeks, to people who probably shouldn't be greeted in that fashion. Now the only thing that Zan knows to conclude the conversation with Sheba about the difference between his skin and hers is to say some squishy white liberal thing like, you're beautiful silently adding to no one, you come up with something better. Sheba takes her thumb from her mouth, locks his eyes with hers, and draws a finger across her throat. Of course, when she first starts doing the finger across the throat thing, it's alarming. 
Now she does it all the time, little brown buccaneer, to convey irritation at whatever parental lapse has transpired. Zan thought they were going to get a shy little Dickensian orphan girl. Please, sir, may I have some more, with empty porridge bowl lifted pitifully to a merciless world. And when Viv first met her at the Ethiopian orphanage, she beseemed exactly that. She barely spoke, only looked at Viv when she thought Viv wasn't looking. So the first time that the shy little orphan girl emits more volume per capita than any single body Zan has heard, it's like a boombox in a confessional. Planting her small feet in the middle of the house, Sheba rears back and roars, whims and knees, complaints and demands. She sweeps through the house, picking up everything within reach and turning things on and off, pushing every button of every machine, appliance and device, until all are rendered digitally senseless. Zan and Viv worried that the shy little orphan girl would be traumatized by the family dog named Piranha, a demented mix of Jack Terrier and Chihuahua called a Jackawawa. Named as a puppy by Parker, Piranha so terrorized the neighborhood, attacking other dogs, chasing neighbors' cars, holding UPS men hostage on their trucks. That an, an electric fence has been installed around the yard, and the dog has been fitted with a collar, with an, an, with an electric collar. This in spite of Zan's doubts that Piranha can be restrained by any mere voltage once used to execute Soviet spies. When Viv went to Africa for Sheba, figuring out what to do about Piranha was one of Zan's tasks back home. And the Canyon's local dog expert told him flatly, you're going to have to get rid of him. He'll terrorize the poor child. Piranha never knew what hit him. Throttled by the small girl within half an hour of her arrival until his eyes bulged, soon the animal was darting shell-shocked from one hiding place of the house to the next. Only when he was hopping up and down the stairs like shrimp on a grill, as if trying to get out of his own fur, did Parker figure out that Sheba had pushed the button on the wall unit that controlled Piranha's electric collar. Originally set at four, the monitor now was a nine. The dog zapped silly from one end of the house to the, uh, to the other. Of course, Sheba's name isn't really Sheba. On the birth certificate that came with the adoption, her name is shown as Zima, which in Amharic means, well, Zan and Viv aren't sure what it means. The closest variation means melody or hymn. But from what Zan understands, Ethiopian names only derive meaning from adjoining names, like tarot cards derive meaning from the surrounding cards. Only by putting all of a person's names together do you complete the meaning. Zan hasn't been to Ethiopia, but somehow this thing with the name seems typical of everything he knows about it. Ethiopia has an extra month of the year, and as best as Zan can understand, its own clock falling half an hour between the time zones of the world. It isn't so much that Ethiopia invented its own time zone, but that its zone is the original time, the temporal referent against which all other zones have contrived themselves. Within weeks of coming to LA, Sheba has mastered English, but after more than a year, notions of time remain elusive. 
even as she grasps other subtleties, she continues to be confounded by distinctions among weeks, days, hours, minutes. Appropriate for a child of civilization's ground zero, the land where God placed Adam and Eve, the burial place of the oldest human fossil. We are all Ethiopians, Viv likes to say. To the family, Sheba's emotional need seems like a dark well that falls to time's center. It sets in motion dynamics compounded by Sheba's singular measure of things. He's number one, she protests, pointing at her brother. I'm number three. And Zan can't be sure if this is errant math or Ethiopia's own system of measurement, like his own calibration of time, or whatever manipulation knows to leave out two. Zan realizes that Sheba is the single most defiant child he's known. She'll abdicate the role of child altogether in order to assume authority. She self-administers timeouts when the parents don't. She calls Viv young lady and Parker baby, which incites the boy into answering, you're the baby, you're the baby, and eventually defiance's repertoire expands. I'm a professional, is her latest rallying cry, employed to end any contentious conversation. Eat your carrots, Sheba. Leave me alone, I'm a professional. <laughs> Clean up your room. I don't need you telling me, I'm a professional. When she becomes a teenager, Zan grimly resolves, I'm faking my death. A particularly boisterous and pyrotechnic plane crash off the coast of Tahiti, or a naked walk into a ravenous sea. From the beginning, Sheba has had an affinity for music. Because this is so much of the stuff of racial cliche, Zan barely can tell people about the more earthbound aspects, the girl running for a piano like other kids do a scooter, warbling cheerfully in the yard of the orphanage back in Addis Ababa to the lightning in the sky, let alone that the girl's small body literally hums with song. Within a week of Sheba's arrival, the family noticed it at the dinner table when everyone heard from her, barely audible, a distant music. Sheba, we don't sing at the table, Viv gently tried to admonish her, until one day the mother is driving in Hollywood with Sheba in the back seat and picks up Zan's broadcast from the canyon that usually she can't get half a mile from the station. The little girl transmits on Sheba frequency. Zan calls her Radio Ethiopia. Up until around the time of Sheba's adoption, Zan taught popular culture and 20th century literature at a local college. The popular culture course began with the year 1954 because that was when a white 19-year-old truck driver wandered into a Memphis recording studio only weeks after the Supreme Court ruled racial segregation unconstitutional and instinctively, unconsciously miscegenated, in the language of the day, white and black music. Caught up in the sweep of a story, by the end of every semester, the students invariably shed their old school, new school distinctions to afford Zan an ovation. It's the closest he's come, he's come to telling an epic. He doubts he's told a story better, certainly not any of his own. The suspension of Zan's teaching contract began the Nordox recession 15 months before the rest of the countries. A series of media strikes sidelined Viv's career as a photographer that's never recovered. 
Viv and Zan have kept themselves afloat on credit cards in order to make the payments on the house. Then the monthly mortgage went from $2,800 to $6,000 as the house's value fell by a third. It's the perfect shitstorm of bad financial turns. Now Zan and Viv are many months delinquent on the house, which has, been for, which has been scheduled for foreclosure twice, only to receive staves of execution at the last moment. The debt to credit card companies has reached a level that Zan doesn't want to know. We don't know how much we owe, Viv whispers so the kids won't hear. We do know, says Zan, a lot. But shouldn't we figure it out exactly, she says. No, he says. No, no. Why not, she says. Because, Zan says, I need to be able to get out of bed in the morning. Because quantifying it with more precision won't make it any less or any easier to deal with. Because sometimes you need a little denial in order to function. Zan is certain that Parker, not only a smart but intuitive kid, knows something is wrong. Promise me, the boy says one day in the car, that we're not going to move. And Zan chokes, I promise, and ponders the expiration date of lies to children. Finances weigh down everything. Zan believes it's killing him. It coincides with the hackneyed gloom of, of autumnal years, the astonished paw at the great approaching wind down. He travels in a movable depression with headaches that never end, locating themselves around one eye like a vice when he wakes in the morning and goes to bed at the end of the day and wakes again the next morning. He believes that if by some miracle he and Viv should extricate themselves from these circumstances, within months, weeks, maybe days or moments, some fatal illness will manifest itself, because at the same time he believes that their money crisis is killing him, he al he's also convinced that fate is a trickster. At the same time that it's killing him, the constant war for economic survival also is the thing keeping some other doom at bay. Fate waits for the most delicious moment to play its ultimate trick in some unlikely future when everything finally is all right. While Zan feels foolish that it's taken him a lifetime to know it, it's reassuring to finally understand that the banks are evil. It lends to the situation a clarity that's confirmed by every contact and transition. You don't want to own this house, he tries to explain to them. No doors on half the rooms and a driveway so steep it's practically vertical. You're never going to find anyone else who wants to live here. Loan number? asked the lender on the other end of the line in a ritual now familiar enough that Zan has made it a point on general principle not to learn the number by heart. 30613951918, he reads from the application. Address, the woman says, 1861 Relic Road. Are you receiving mail at that address? Yes. Are you living at the residence? Yes. You're not renting the dwelling or we live here, it's our house. You have an outstanding balance on the property, she says, of $1,147,562.08. Are you prepared to make a payment in that amount today? No, Zan sighs. The lending agent says, how then may I assist you today, asshole? Zan looks at the phone in his hand. Excuse me, he says. 
how may I, how may I assist you today? Zan says, that isn't what you said. There's silence on the other end of the line. I'm sorry? That isn't what you said. That is what I said. You said something else, Zan insists. That's what I said, sir. How may I assist you today? Zan chews over the moment and clears his throat. I'm calling to find out the status of our most recent application for a modification of our home loan. This is the fifth we've submitted, he thinks, or maybe the sixth. Let me review that, she answers, and there's a pause. Then, the application is still being processed, motherfucker. <laughs> now Zan doesn't, need, doesn't feel the need to examine his telephone. What, he says? The application is still being processed. That isn't what you said. You said something else. I'm sorry, says the woman. You said something else. What did you call me? Another pause. Sir, I'm not sure what you think I said, but the application is still being processed and a modification officer will be getting back to you. Cocksucker. <laughs> Lying in bed at night, Zan concludes that maybe the new president isn't going to save their house. He gets up and turns on the light because otherwise he becomes insufferable even to himself in his sense of persecution and guilt over how his children now find themselves in this predicament. He wonders about the terms of his life insurance policy and how it might take care of his family if he could somehow will himself into an aneurysm. He reflects on the perversity of how the family's luck could go so bad on the occasion of adopting an African orphan. Aren't you supposed to get points for that on the karmic scoreboard? He muses if that possibly can be the word on how his time is nearly over and yet his moment, whenever or whatever that ever was supposed to be, still hasn't come. He thinks about his father-in-law who died six years ago and his last words. That went fast. Sometimes when Zan wakes in the early hours with his usual terror and sits up in bed, he returns to a new novel that no one knows he's writing. The novel is about a middle-aged middle LA writer who, feeling discouraged and despondent, this isn't remotely autobiographical, escapes to Berlin a few years after the fall of the wall. The middle-aged writer befriends, or so he believes, a young German skinhead who's besotted with the new world, except it's a new world of white supremacists and cracked Midwest Nazi messiahs. Within the first nine or 10,000 words of Zan's novel, this happens and that happens, most of which Zan knows he'll wind up cutting. The story really begins when the young German skinhead follows the protagonist one night and near the entrance of the U-Bahn with a gang of other skinheads viciously beats the writer and leaves him for dead in the street. Or maybe actually he is dead. This novel being not remotely autobiographical is hard for Zan to be certain. As the dying man lies in the street, a black teenage girl emerges from the shadows where she is hidden while the incident took place. Zan knows that a novel keeps secrets from its author, and the first secret this novel keeps from him is that like his own daughter, the teenage girl in the story is a transmitter, broadcasting from parts unknown. 
Like Sheba, her body perspires in song. Once the skinheads have left, the girl approaches the body in the street when she hears herself rise in volume. Why is she black, Sam wonders, annoyed with himself for asking. Can I make her a black girl? When he sees her in his head, she's black. So that should be the end of it. But do I have the right to make her black? She's not a major character, rather someone who sets in motion a plot. So is it exploitative to make her black when there's no point to it? Or is it wrong to think there has to be a point to it? Characters are black only because they need to be? What do I know about being black? Isn't any white person who writes about race asking for trouble? Of course, I don't know anything about being a teenage girl either. For that matter, I don't know anything about being anyone else other than who I am. Zan grew up in the white LA suburbs. His parents were Midwesterners who came, as his father acknowledged one night during the evening news, while black people were being hosed down and attacked by dogs on television, from a past where white and black didn't meet. Not a single thing about the black experience penetrated Zan's own until he was the age that his son is now. That was when he came home one afternoon from school and on his parents' stereo played a record of country songs sung by a blind black man. This wasn't the sort of music that Zan had heard before. And though for decades afterward, purists would declaim the aesthetic offense of a soul genius committing his voice to such white songs and white strings and white arrangements, to the 12-year-old Zan, the music surrounding whiteness made the blackness of the voice all the more shocking. Decades later, Zan understands that as epiphanies about race go, this is pretty pathetic. Still, it rearranged the furniture in Zan's head and knocked out one or two of the walls. Zan would know for the rest of his life that this was the most subversive record ever made, a white Trojan horse that smuggled a blind black man into the gates of Zan's white city. Every afternoon, returning from school, Zan snuck the record down to his own room and listened to it over and over, the volume low because it felt like something he should get in trouble for like reading a forbidden book. The only child of a socially and politically conservative family, lower middle class when he was smaller, on the edges of upper middle class by the time he finished high school, Zan was a 15-year-old right-winger before the erosion of his adolescent certainties by the television images of Negroes at the mercy of flying police sticks. That erosion was the end of one nascent political identity such as it ever was, and the beginning of another such as it ever would be. And by the time Zan was a college student, he found his political psyche outflanked on all sides. Students graced their dormitory walls with posters of the leader of a revolution in China, one of the great killers of the 20th century. And for all the ways that Zan's parents came to suspect their son was kidnapped in the night by left-wing professors who implanted a Marxist chip in his brain. In fact, Zan felt less a part of anything and more an odd man out of everything. 
whatever else was true. However, one thing was incontestable to Zan, and it was that his political conservatism failed the nation's great moral test of the decade, which was how to redeem the transgression of slavery that betrayed his country's original promise. Now in the novel that Zan writes in the middle of the night about the writer dying in the streets of Berlin, the black teenage witness to the beating hears the music coming out of herself and retreats into the mouth of the U-Bahn. She's black, Zan decides once and for all, pushing the laptop away. The hell with whether I have the right to make her so. The family is driving down Pacific Coast Highway one afternoon, mostly in silence, but for the harmonics coming from Sheba's body, when they pass new signs demarcating tsunami safety zones. Stop singing, Parker cries in exasperation to his sister. I'm not, says Sheba. She can't help it, says Zan. It's not coming from her. It is coming from her, says Parker. I've never noticed those, Viv says, about the tsunami signs. It's coming from her, but not actually, Zan says to Parker, through her. How big, asks Parker, is a tsunami compared to a regular wave? The signs apparently mean to indicate what level of ground people must flee to in order to be safe. Would one hit our house? We don't have to worry about tsunamis, says Viv. And though she doesn't mean it that way, the implication is that there already are enough things to worry about. Zan wonders if Viv is thinking the same thing, which is, if the bank takes the house, bring on that fucking tsunami. But more likely, Viv is just trying to strike from her children's running list of horribles one more horror. The ocean might come, in, come up into the canyon a bit, says Zan. And Viv shoots him a look. Oh, great, tell them the, the tsunami is going to come into the canyon. Just a bit, Zan hastily stress, stresses, where the canyon begins. Uber cool, says Parker. He's at the age where it's hard for Zan to tell the cool from the holocaustic. Lately, Parker and his friends call something sick when they mean it's great. What does that say about the era, wonders Zan. When I was young, Zan remembers things were wicked. Wicked was good, and soon we were doing things that we thought were good that for centuries people thought were wicked. In our slang lies the future. Thanks for coming. had some experience with four-year-olds, yes. Are there any um, tendencies that you're aware of that you have to restrain when you're writing a novel, like any like ways of writing or emotions that you're like, let's not go crazy with that consciously, or you just kind of... Well, you know, I, I, this is my ninth novel, and I, I suppose the thing I'm most conscious of is that I'm not repeating myself too much, or that I'm, I'm uh, if I'm covering uh, familiar ground, which often I am, that I'm finding something new to say about it. I think that um, 
you know, as uh, I think this is probably true of all writers, as you, the, the, the more you write, the more you realize what you don't need to write, the more you realize what you can leave out. And um, my books tend to, uh, you know, when I'm finished with, with the first draft and I go back to revising, they always wind up shorter. Uh, that is, I rarely am adding things. I'm usually taking thing, things out. Um, but you know, I, 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 beyond that, I don't know how to answer your question except that at this point, it it becomes fairly instinctive. And and I think that uh, you know, I, I'm sure that intuitively, I'm uh, you know, I'm I'm checking certain things I do, even as you don't want to be doing that too much when you're writing the first draft. You you don't want want to be second guessing yourself. It's better to to write it, and then you can. And, and when I first write a book, it's, it's very instinctive and it's very intuitive and, and I haven't completely thought it through. And then later on when I go back to it is when I bring all the, the calculation. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Um, in practically all of your novels, with possible exception of Asian sensations, I think it was the first, you often make a lot of references to a another novel, uh, especially kind of funny piece of the Berlin thing with the writer. Is that, in, I, obviously it's intentional, I'm just wondering what the intentions that we're doing, is it more of an echo? Yeah, um, it's, it's uh, yes, of course it's, it's got to be intentional. Um, but what the reason behind, what, what the reason behind it is, the reason behind it is, is less intentional. I'm not sure what the reason is, except that it 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 makes sense to me to sort of for all these books to be taking place in 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 the same world on the same landscape, e even as things change from from novel to a novel, um, and even as as so some some of the characters will change from novel to to novel. Of course, I, I'm I'm aware that I'm doing it. Uh, and you know, I, I suppose I worry at times that that it becomes a almost a kind of literary fetish, you know. That uh, but it's it it, and if at some point it didn't feel natural, I th I would like to think I wouldn't do it. I was curious about how you approach kind of uh, like the stories that you're telling in your novels versus narrative structures. <laughs> it seems like that's something you do play with, like in Zero Bill, if those kind of quick cuts and the way the book was formatted came from the story or the idea for that narrative structure? No, the, it, 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 it all, I mean, you know, a character drives story and story drives structure. I don't want to sound too much like a writing teacher, but, uh, and, and, and God knows there's some great writer out there who's doing it, it who, better than I am, who's doing it exactly the opposite. But the, in the case of Zeroville, for instance, it's, it's, it's probably the only novel of mine that's, that's linear. And it has those kind of quick cuts you're talking about, and it's uh, it's it's virtually all told in in action and dialogue. Well, it's a novel about the movies, and I just I felt like the 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 narrative should conform as much to to the laws of movie storytelling. And obviously, I'm being really reductive because movies tell stories in a lot of ways. But it, but 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 
classic movie storytelling uh, um, um, determined the structure of that book. Um, it's all, it, uh, the structure al almost always comes out of the story. I, I, I can't think of a single example in my case where it's been the other way around. It's not the topic of structuring your stories, um, the way these numbers and cut chapters, some are more static than others. And I noticed that you seem to do that with type in this book. How, how does that conform to um, you know, what? At what point do you decide on that structure? That you know, I kind of um, this wound up being a novel about a lot of things. I mean, it's a it's, it's a novel about it's a story about this family. It winds up being a story about ongoing uh, uh, American history. Uh, it's a story about a presidential campaign at one point. Um, it's a story about music. Uh, there are riffs on. There are riffs on the New Testament. There, are, there, there's a lot of stuff going on in this, in this um, novel. And in fact, uh, about two months before I finished the novel, I was, um, I was a house sitting for somebody I never even met in in Austin, where I've got a. Uh, not, not Austin, in, in Lubbock, where I've got a good friend. And I, I was kind of riding around the clock, because I had, I had bought myself a week where I, I could just do nothing but work on the novel. And I woke up one night about three in the morning thinking, what the hell am I doing? You know, this, 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 there's all this stuff going on in this novel. I must be out of my mind thinking the novel can can contain it. And, you know, I sort of, I talked myself down from the ledge that you always wind up at at three in the morning and went back to sleep and got up the next morning and went back and read the novel and, you know, I realized it was not the total disaster that I had, that it had seemed four hours before. But I also had a moment of clarity where I realized that um, uh, the, the, the balance of these various elements um, and the orchestration of that balance was going to be crucial. And that, for instance, every all the, these other things going on had to fit under the umbrella of the story of the family. All of which is, is to say that it wound up having this kind of kaleidoscopic structure, which I think is what, what you see in, in, in this novel, where there's a lot of bits and pieces, and I put a lot of time and thought into, you know, um, into the arrangement of, of those bits and pieces and the relationship among them. And, and that was one of the reasons, for instance, the novel kept getting shorter. Because the more, because as I would take out certain things to, to, to achieve the right balance, uh, you know, I would wind up then taking out other things. And, and the original manuscript was probably about 50 pages longer than, than what the novel wound up being. So the, the, I was going for a kind of, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I was going for, for this kind of kaleidoscopic effect um, or, mosaic effect, and that is what wound up dictating this particular structure. It felt like, it felt naturally like a, a, a story told in pieces, provided I could keep the reader moving from one piece to the next. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for coming.
You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.